Section 7 of History of England, Volume 1E. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Cote. History of England, Volume 1E, by David Hume. Section 7. A commission had likewise been granted, and some money remitted in order to raise a thousand German horse and transport them into England. These were supposed to be levied in order to support the projected impositions or excises, though the number seems insufficient for such a purpose. The House took notice of this design in severe terms, and no measure, surely, could be projected more generally odious to the whole nation. It must, however, be confessed that the king was so far right that he had now at last fallen on the only effectual method for supporting his prerogative. But at the same time, he should have been insensible that till provided with a sufficient military force, all his attempts in opposition to the rising spirit of the nation must in the end prove wholly fruitless, and that the higher he screwed up the springs of government, while he had so little real power to retain them in that forced situation, with more fatal violence must they fly out when an accident occurred to restore them to their natural action. The commons next resumed their censure of Buckingham's conduct and behavior, against whom they were implacable. They agreed to present a remonstrance to the king, in which they recapitulated all national grievances and misfortunes, and omitted no circumstance which could render the whole administration despicable and odious. The compositions with Catholics, they said, amounted to no less than a toleration, hateful to God, full of dishonor and disprofit to his majesty, and of extreme scandal and grief to his good people. They took notice of the violations of liberty above mentioned, against which the petition of right seems to have provided a sufficient remedy. They mentioned the decay of trade, the unsuccessful expeditions to Cadiz and the Isle of Ray the encouragement given to Arminians, the commission for transporting German horse, that for levying illegal impositions, and all these grievances they ascribed solely to the ill conduct of the Duke of Buckingham. This remonstrance was perhaps not the less provoking to Charles, because joined to the extreme acrimony of the subject, there were preserved in it, as in most of the remonstrances of that age, an affected civility, and submission in the language. And as it was the first return which he met with for his late beneficial concessions, and for his sacrifices of prerogative, the greatest by far ever made by an English sovereign, nothing could be more the object of just and natural indignation. It was not without good grounds that the commons were so fierce and assuming. Though they had already granted the king the supply of five subsidies, they still retained a pledge in their hands, which they thought ensured them success in all their applications. Tonnage and poundage had not yet been granted by Parliament, and the Commons had artfully this session concealed their intention of invading that branch of revenue, till the royal assent had been obtained to the petition of right, which they justly deemed of such importance. They then openly asserted that the levying of tonnage and poundage without consent of Parliament, was a palpable violation of the ancient liberties of the people, 
and an open infringement of the petition of right, so lately granted. The king, in order to prevent the finishing and presenting this remonstrance, came suddenly to the parliament, and ended this session by a prorogation. Being freed for some time from the embarrassment of this assembly, Charles began to look forwards to foreign wars, where all his efforts were equally unsuccessful as in his domestic government. The Earl of Denby, brother-in-law to Buckingham, was dispatched to the relief of Rochelle, now closely besieged by land and threatened with a blockade by sea, but he returned without effecting anything, and having declined to attack the enemy's fleet, he brought on the English arms the imputation either of a cowardice or ill conduct. In order to repair this dishonor, the Duke went to Portsmouth, where he had prepared a considerable fleet and army, on which all the subsidies given by Parliament had been expended. This supply had very much disappointed the King's expectations. The same mutinous spirit which prevailed in the House of Commons had diffused itself over the nation, and the commissioners appointed for making the assessments had connived at all frauds which might diminish the supply and reduce the crown to still greater necessities. This national discontent, communicated to a desperate enthusiast, soon broke out in an event which may be considered as remarkable. There was one Felton, of a good family, but of an ardent, melancholic temper, who had served under the Duke in the station of lieutenant. His captain, being killed in the retreat at the Isle of Ray, Felton had applied for the company, and when disappointed he threw up his commission and retired in discontent from the army. While private resentment was boiling in his sullen, unsociable mind, he heard the nation resound with complaints against the Duke, and he met with the remonstrance of the commons, in which his enemy was represented as the cause of every national grievance, and as the great enemy of the public. Religious fanaticism further inflamed these vindictive reflections, and he fancied that he should do heaven acceptable service if at one blow he dispatched this dangerous foe to religion and to his country. Full of these dark views, he secretly arrived at Portsmouth at the same time with the Duke, and watched for an opportunity of effecting his bloody purpose. Buckingham had been engaged in conversation with Subies and other French gentlemen, and a difference of sentiment having arisen, the dispute, though conducted with temper and decency, had produced some of those vehement gesticulations and lively exertions of voice in which that nation, more than the English, are apt to indulge themselves. The conversation being finished, the Duke drew towards the door, and in that passage, turning himself to speak to Sir Thomas Fryer, a colonel in the army, he was on the sudden, over Sir Thomas's shoulder, struck upon the breast with a knife. Without uttering other words than, THE VILLAIN HAS KILLED ME! In the same moment, pulling out the knife, he breathed his last. No man had seen the blow, nor the person who gave it, but in the confusion everyone made his own conjecture, and all agreed that the murder had been committed by the French gentleman whose angry tone of voice had been heard, while their words had not been understood by the bystanders. In the hurry of revenge they had instantly been put to death, had they not been saved by some of more temper and judgment, who, though they had the same opinion of their guilt, thought proper to reserve them for a judicial trial and examination. 
Near the door there was found a hat, in the inside of which was sewed a paper, containing four or five lines of that remonstrance of the commons which declared Buckingham an enemy to the kingdom, and under these lines was a short ejaculation, or attempt towards a prayer. It was easily concluded that this hat belonged to the assassin, but the difficulty still remained who that person should be, for the writing discovered not the same, and whoever he was it was natural to believe that he had already fled far enough not to be found without a hat. In this hurry, a man without a hat was seen walking very composedly toward the door. One crying out, Here is the fellow who killed the duke! Everybody ran to ask, Which is he? The man very sedately answered, I am he. The more furious immediately rushed upon him with drawn swords. Others, more deliberate, defended and protected him. He himself, with open arms, calmly and cheerfully exposed his breast to the swords of the most enraged, being willing to fall a sudden sacrifice to their anger, rather than being reserved for that public justice which he knew must be executed upon him. He was now known to be that Felton who had served in the army. Being carried into a private room, it was thought proper so far to dissemble as to tell him that Buckingham was only grievously wounded but not without hopes of recovery. Felton smiled and told them that the duke, he knew full well, had received a blow which had terminated all their hopes. When asked at whose instigation he had performed the horrid deed, he replied that they needed not to trouble themselves in that inquiry, that no man living had credit enough with him to have disposed him to such an action, that he had not even entrusted his purpose to anyone, that the resolution proceeded only from himself and the impulse of his own conscience, and that his motives would appear if his hat were found, for that, believing he should perish in the attempt, he had there taken care to explain them. When the king was informed of this assassination, he received the news in public with an unmoved and undisturbed countenance, and the courtiers who studied his looks concluded that secretly he was not displeased to be rid of a minister so generally odious to the nation. But Charles' command of himself proceeded entirely from the gravity and composure of his temper. He was still as much as ever attached to his favorite, and during his whole life he retained an affection for Buckingham's friends, and a prejudice against his enemies. He urged, too, that Felton should be put to the question, in order to extort from him a discovery of his accomplices, but the judges declared that though that practice had formerly been very usual, it was altogether illegal. So much reasoners with regard to law had they become from the jealous scruples of the House of Commons. Meanwhile, the distress of Rochelle had risen to the utmost extremity. That vast genius of Rochelieu, which made him form the greatest enterprises, led him to attempt their execution by means equally great and extraordinary. In order to deprive Rochelle of all succor, he had dared to project the throwing across the harbor a mole of a mile's extent in that boisterous ocean, and having executed his project, he now held the town closely blockaded on all sides. The inhabitants, though pressed with the greatest rigors of famine, still refused to submit being supported partly by the lectures of their zealous preachers, 
partly by the daily hopes of relief from England, after Buckingham's death, the command of the fleet and army was conferred on the Earl of Lindesey, who, arriving before Rochelle, made some attempts to break through the mole and force his way into the harbor. But by the delays of the English, that work was now fully finished and fortified, and the Rochellers, finding their last hopes to fail them, were reduced to surrender at discretion, even in sight of the English admiral. Of fifteen thousand persons shut up in the city, four thousand alone survived the fatigues and famine which they had undergone. This was the first necessary step towards the prosperity of France. Foreign enemies, as well as domestic factions, being deprived of this resource, that kingdom began now to shine forth in its full splendor. By a steady prosecution of wise plans, both of war and policy, it gradually gained an ascendant over the rival power of Spain, and every order of the state and every sect were reduced to pay submission to the lawful authority of the sovereign. The victory, however, over the Huguenots was at first pushed by the French king with great moderation. A toleration was still continued to them, the only avowed and open toleration which at that time was granted in any European kingdom. 1629. The failure of an enterprise in which the English nation, from religious sympathy, so much interested themselves, could not but diminish the king's authority in the parliament during the approaching session. But the commons, when assembled, found many other causes of complaint. Buckingham's conduct and character with some had afforded a reason, with others a pretense, for discontent against public measures, but after his death, there wanted not new reasons and new pretenses for general dissatisfaction. Manwaring's pardon and promotion were taken notice of. Sibthorpe and Cosins, two clergymen, who, for like reasons, were no less obnoxious to the commons, had met with like favor from the king. Montague, who had been censured for moderation towards the Catholics, the greatest of crimes, had been created bishop of Chichester. They found likewise upon inquiry that all the copies of the petition of right which were dispersed had, by the king's orders, annexed to them the first answer, which had given so little satisfaction to the commons, an expedient by which Charles endeavored to persuade the people that he had nowise receded from his former claims and pretensions, particularly where, with regard to the levying of tonnage and poundage. Selden also complained in the house that one savage, contrary to the petition of right, had been punished with the loss of his ears by a discretionary or arbitrary sentence of the star chamber. So apt were they, on their part, to stretch the petition into such consequences as might deprive the crown of powers which, from immemorial custom, were supposed inherent in it. But the great article on which the House of Commons broke with the king, and which finally created in Charles a disgust to all parliaments, was their claim with regard to tonnage and poundage. On this occasion, therefore, it is necessary to give an account of the controversy. The duty of tonnage and poundage in more ancient times had been commonly a temporary grant of Parliament, but it had been conferred on Henry V and on all the succeeding princes during life in order to enable them to maintain a naval force 
for the defense of the kingdom. The necessity of levying this duty had been so apparent that each king had ever claimed it from the moment of his accession, and the first parliament of each reign had usually by vote conferred on the prince what they found him already in possession of. Agreeably to the inaccurate genius of the old constitution, this abuse, however considerable, had never been perceived nor remedied, though nothing could have been easier than for the Parliament to have prevented it. By granting this duty to each prince during his own life, and for a year after his demise to the successor, all inconveniences had been obviated, and yet the duty had never for a moment been levied without proper authority. But contrivances of that nature were not thought of during those rude ages, and as so complicated and jealous a government as the English cannot subsist without many such refinements. It is easy to see how favorable every inaccuracy must formerly have proved to royal authority, which, on all emergencies, was obliged to supply, by discretionary power, the great deficiencies of the laws. The Parliament did not grant the duty of tonnage and poundage to Henry the Eighth till the sixth of his reign. Yet this prince who had not then raised his power to its greatest height, continued during that whole time to levy the imposition. The Parliament, in their very grant, blame the merchants who had neglected to make payment to the crown. And though one expression of that bill may seem ambiguous, they employ the plainest terms in calling tonnage and poundage the king's due, even before that duty was conferred on him by parliamentary authority four reigns and above a whole century had since elapsed and this revenue had still been levied before it was voted by parliament so long had the inaccuracy continued without being remarked or corrected during that short interval which passed between charles's accession and his first parliament he had followed the example of his predecessors and no fault was found with his conduct in this particular but what was most remarkable in the proceedings of that house of commons and what proved beyond controversy that they had seriously formed a plan for reducing their prince to subjection was that instead of granting the supply during the king's lifetime as it had been enjoyed by all his immediate predecessors they voted it only for a year and after that should be elapsed reserved to themselves the power of renewing or refusing the same concession but the House of Peers, who saw that this duty was now become more necessary than ever to supply the growing necessities of the crown, and who did not approve of this encroaching spirit in the commons, rejected the bill, and the dissolution of that parliament followed so soon after, that no attempt seemed to have been made for obtaining tonnage and poundage in any form. The reason assigned by Sir Philip Warwick for this unusual measure of the commons is, that they intended to deprive the crown of the prerogative which it had assumed of varying the rates of the impositions, and at the same time were resolved to cut off the new rates fixed by James. These were considerable diminutions, both of revenue and prerogative, and whether they would have there stopped considering their present disposition may be much doubted. The king, it seems, and the lords were resolved not to trust them, nor to render a revenue once precarious, which perhaps they might never afterwards be able to get re-established on the old footing. Charles, meanwhile, 
continued still to levy this duty by his own authority, and the nation was so accustomed to that exertion of royal power that no scruple was at first entertained of submitting to it. But the succeeding Parliament excited doubts in every one. The Commons took their some steps towards declaring it illegal to levy tonnage and poundage without consent of Parliament, and they openly showed their intention of employing this engine in order to extort from the crown concessions of the most important nature. But Charles was not yet sufficiently tamed to compliance, and the abrupt dissolution of that Parliament, as above related, put an end, for the time, to their further pretensions. End of Section 7 Recording by Tim Cote of Santa Maria, California February 9, 2013